Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week, well, a pretty U.S.-centered episode. Uh, what else could I do on this, the anniversary of the first legitimately attempted coup in the United States' history? Um, this episode is the general release episode. The other episode I'm releasing today, the special episode on January 6th, is more in-depth coverage and retrospective on the coup itself. Starting with this week's news analysis, Donald Trump has formally endorsed Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, in the upcoming Hungarian elections. This is from the New York Times. This is part of a larger story of the United States' right-wing's turn towards Hungary and other illiberal governments. Uh, for example, the next CPAC meeting, which is a major gathering of conservative figures, that is in the United States is instead going to be meeting in Budapest. It's kind of confusing. This is also not the first time that Trump has thrown his weight behind a right-wing figure outside of the United States. He has also formally endorsed the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. Meanwhile, Biden has been really distancing himself from Orban. Specifically, he ignored Hungary in his Summit of Democracies, which he held uh, a while ago. Trump has been sidling up to Orban specifically because Orban represents the kind of politics that Trump wants to have. Orban is fantastically popular in Hungary, legitimately, and also has used Hungarian law and substantially changed Hungarian law in order to get a lot of his legislative agenda, which is extremely retrograde, reactionary, anti-LGBTQ, anti-women's rights, anti-immigrant rights, passed. Further on the right regarding Donald Trump, many people on the right wing in the United States, including, for example, Alex Jones of InfoWars, uh, are turning against Trump because Trump has publicly supported people getting the vaccine and getting boosters, uh, including telling everybody that he himself, of course, was vaccinated as soon as humanly possible and got the booster as soon as humanly possible. Uh, this is pretty interesting because it represents a wider trend, again, of many people on the, the extreme right of the United States turning against Donald Trump for perceived moderation in the wake of his defeat last uh, presidential election, and also his, you know, failure to really embrace the right wing as an outsider political candidate. It's also particularly interesting because it highlights one of the bigger questions about vaccine quote, hesitancy or vaccine opposition on the part of many people on the right wing, it's not inevitable that the right wing would be opposed to a vaccine. You know, the far right, especially the racialist far right in the modern world, has historically been very much on politics of cleanliness, purity, the prevention of disease. This was a major part of the start of the logics of the Holocaust in the Nazi regime, for example. Uh, so the fact that the far right in the United States has ended up opposed to the vaccines is not historically inevitable. It's, it's extremely interesting. And this is on top of the fact that Trump, of course, could conceivably legitimately claim to be responsible for the existence of the vaccine, you know, to the extent that a president can claim to be responsible for anything that happens in the country while they're the president. And finally, concerning Donald Trump, he has canceled a planned rally and speech to be held today, January 6th, 2022, his own retrospective on his attempted coup. Uh, he says that he's canceled it, largely apparently in response to calls to cancel it by uh, GOP congressman 
other lawmakers and other right-wing officials in the United States. In somewhat more unusual news, Sebastian Kurz, the former chancellor of Austria, has left Austrian politics and is moving to the United States in order to be a consultant to Peter Thiel, uh, that is uh, Silicon Valley's own quasi-fascist demagogue leader type person. Uh, Sebastian Kurz, while chancellor of Austria, was famously in coalition with the quasi-fascist Freedom Party, uh, so you know exactly where his politics are. Continuing on in news in the United States, we have more evidence that members of the Oath Keepers were involved in the Republican Party prior to the January 6th attempted coup. Uh, A lot of this is coming from an anonymous group of doxers uh, known as the Distributed Denial of Secrets. Uh, This has shown that 47 state and local government officers have been involved in the Oath Keepers organization, that is, are are active members of this organization. And as a reminder, the Oath Keepers is one of the primary sort of fascist militant organizations in the United States. Uh, They organize and participate in violent or at least threateningly violent rallies uh, around the country, including the attempted coup last year, uh, as well as similar rallies and activity in many state and local places in the United States. Additionally, 400 people have signed up to the Oath Keepers apparently using government emails, uh, meaning that they either work or worked for the government if they're not an official in and of itself. And this, of course, is not even counting the cops, the police officers, and members of the United States military who are members of the Oath Keepers, uh, of which there are many. This is further evidence of the infiltration and reorganization of the mainstream right in the United States along the lines of a fascist or quasi-fascist organization. You know, these are militants who are recruiting members of the government in the United States from the ground up, you know, at many or all levels. And that's something that uh, we got to pay attention to. We got to be really careful about. Continuing on to contemporary news about the January 6th attempted coup last year, Merrick Garland has said that the Department of Justice is not done in its investigation and is essentially defending his sort of like long-term strategy for investigating the coup. Uh, This is coming in the wake of criticisms about the fact that the DOJ hasn't like put out major definitive investigative documents regarding the coup because, you know, it, it seems, according to these accusations, that maybe they are dragging their feet, they're biding their time. Uh, Garland is defending the slow approach of the organization, uh, saying that they want to get everything right, and that the sort of smaller accusations and smaller trials and things of that nature are in preparation for bigger investigations and trials to come. However, the criticism here is that the DOJ can only do that for as long as it's controlled by a Democrat. As soon as a Republican takes control of it, the investigation will probably stop. Speaking of the January 6th investigation, the special committee of the House of Representatives is now looking into uh, actually issuing subpoenas to sitting members of Congress in order to get them to divulge information to the committee. This is coming from Reuters. Uh, They are they, as in the January 6th Select Committee, are unsure if they have the authority to issue these subpoenas. Because again, 
this is a committee comprised of members of Congress, of representatives in the House of Representatives, and they, they would be issuing subpoenas to their fellow congresspersons. It's not certain whether they have the legal ground to do this, but if they do, they might really do it. And that would be some real hardball to pull in an election year 2022, uh, specifically an election year for everybody in the United States House. The GOP members of House who have been asked to testify or to divulge information to the committee have all refused, uh, all of them claiming that the committee either has no legal authority to get them to actually divulge this information, or that the committee has no authority or legitimacy to exist at all, uh, which is a pretty big charge. Finally, in contemporary news about the January 6th attempted coup, apparently the Department of Justice and the FBI independently had forces on the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, these forces are specifically the parts of those organizations, specifically of the FBI, whose purview is the protection of assets of extreme, vital, strategic interest to the United States. You know, we're talking like fissible material, like, like nuclear material, um, but also things like extremely secret government documents and also extremely important persons in the United States. For example, the president and the vice president. And that's specifically what they were there protecting. That is the body of Mike Pence, then vice president of the United States. Now, in some senses, this is not exactly a surprise that the FBI would be really galvanized in order to potentially invade the Capitol and take Mike Pence out if he fell into the hands of the people who were invading the Capitol themselves, you know, of the rioters themselves. But the surprising part is that apparently the FBI was doing this alone. Uh, they did not contact and were not contacted by other law enforcement offices or other security entities in the United States when they made this decision. They did it unilaterally, which means that conceivably, with just a couple minutes of alternate history, with just a, a few faster runs down some corridors in the Capitol building, uh, we could have had members of the FBI engaging in combat with the people invading the capital. And with a few other changes, you know, maybe if some of the members of the security apparatus who apparently supported the coup were actually more active in their doing so, we could have ended up in a situation in which dueling parts of the security apparatus of the United States were contesting the coup live, potentially violently, in the capital. This is the kind of stuff that was really, really close at the time. Uh, this was really threatened uh, on January 6th of last year. Finally, with some foreign news uh, today when I'm recording this, Wednesday, January 5th, the government of Kazakhstan has fled the country, essentially, uh, in the wake of protests primarily organized around um, major energy price hikes, but also just, you know, opposition to the government in general. This newly government in exile is calling on Russia to intervene. That could spark serious authoritarian crackdowns in that country. That's something that uh, we'll have to pay attention to in the coming weeks. And finally, in non-US news, uh, I was robbed of a feel-good story because Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, was released from the hospital today. 
He has been hospitalized quite a lot during his presidency because he's caught COVID apparently, you know, like maybe twice so far. He's one of the only major world leaders who at least claims to be completely unvaccinated still. Uh, this time he was in the hospital for a gut blockage. Finally, going to close out this episode as I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. Uh, except this week, I am not talking about a dead right-wing figure. I'm talking about a live one. And that means that I am unfortunately noting their birthday instead. This week, I'm talking about none other than Kyle Rittenhouse, born this week in history, January 3rd, 2003. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was born in 2003 in Antioch, Illinois, uh, and was a, you know, typical suburban teen. Uh, Antioch is either a suburb of Chicago or Milwaukee, depending on which direction you drive. And Rittenhouse had a relatively unremarkable life of a white male suburban teenager in the United States. That is, until he, at the age of 17, killed two and wounded one other on August 20th, 2020, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in the context of a Black Lives Matter protest regarding the police shooting of a black person in that city. Rittenhouse claimed that he was in Kenosha in order to defend local businesses there, uh, and he was working with and walking alongside uh, other people who claimed to be doing the same. And these people were armed with assault rifle-style weapons. Uh, they had armor. They had other military-style equipment. One of the people whom Rittenhouse uh, attacked had a pistol himself. Um, however, the others were unarmed. Rittenhouse, of course, was famously acquitted earlier, well, last year now, uh, in a very big trial uh, in which he got off on his claim of self-defense. Rittenhouse then began what might be a long political career of being trotted out at political events to talk about his, well, murders, uh, his partisan murders of left-wing protesters and counter-protesters. So, Kyle Rittenhouse, we'll see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please share it around with your friends, family, and comrades. Leave a like or review on whatever it is that you're listening to this on. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with me, I am at Hist of the Right, that's H-I-S-T of the Right, on Twitter. And I'm 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. If you really enjoyed the podcast, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word and fully spelled out like with letters, not, not the numerals 15. All right. I will talk to you next week. 